Christians sing only the Psalms of David in worship. And they believe that that's what we should do. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church does not take this position, but there are a number of our brothers and sisters in our denomination who do. Now, my purpose in providing a justification or a biblical explanation of why we do not agree with our brothers and sisters who hold this view is not to make uh, anyone who holds that view feel bad or feel sorted out of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but I think that it is well that we speak about these things. And uh, we have determined in our denomination that we are certainly not going to discriminate against anyone who holds that view. We do have two or three congregations that practice singing only the 150 Psalms of David. That's what they do in worship. And they are churches in good and regular standing in our denomination. Dear brothers and sisters, we love them and we respect them. But uh, by and large, we do not agree that that is necessary for us all to follow that practice. And so I'd like to uh, discuss that briefly tonight, uh, not in great detail, but just to give you an idea of the position that at least the great majority of Orthodox Presbyterians hold. It just seemed to me that uh, it's pretty hard to discuss music in the Christian life, and particularly music in worship, without at least facing this question. It could very well be that there are folks uh, here in the uh, room tonight who hold that position. And believe me, I'm not targeting you. I do not even know who you might be. And so don't feel that I am aiming at you in any way. So our question is exclusive psalmody. That's the position that when we sing to God in worship, he wants us to use just the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms, metrified, that is, put in a form that can be singable and then sung to him and only them. Uh, a brief biblical theological approach, I think, however, reveals that we have examples before David of worship material. Obviously, then, though that material would not be the 150 Psalms of David because David wasn't born yet, uh, such as Exodus 15. That was the song that I sang the other night uh, about the Israelites passing over the Red Sea. Uh, there are other uh, suggestions of this in Judges 15 and also Psalm 90. You'll say, but that's a psalm. Yes, but it's the psalm of Moses who lived uh, long before David. Then there is the question, was David ever commanded to write psalms for worship? I'm still searching for a record of that, if it exists. What about after David? Well, we have such passages, and they're in your material, Isaiah 5, 1, 26, 1, 42, 1, 2, and verse 10. Let me read that one particularly. Isaiah 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. This is Isaiah, well after, I, uh, after David, 
who is calling upon the Israelites to sing a new song. And then Psalm 137 would be another example of that. There appears to be no explicit Old Testament command of exclusive psalmody. At least I haven't found it yet. Then when you come to the New Testament, you find in Luke 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, singing her Magnificat. You find the crowd on Palm Sunday breaking forth into a new hymn that's recorded in Luke chapter 19. Hosanna to the Son of David. Other actual hymns, either quoted or reflected upon, can be found in the New Testament text. We sang one of them a couple of nights ago, 1 Timothy 3.16, Undoubtedly Great, the Mystery of Christ. You'll also find it in Philippians 5, uh, 2, Ephesians 5, 2 Timothy 2, and Revelation 15.3. Let's take a look especially at that Revelation song, Revelation 15.3. Well, we better look at verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And here it is. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That, of course, is a contemporary worship song, simply lifted from Revelation chapter 15. Then we have a passage in 1 Corinthians 14, which seems to summarize all of this. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians and verse 26. There the apostle says to the Corinthian church, What shall we say then, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Apparently, it simply is the case that they were singing new hymns in Corinth, and Paul certainly doesn't tell them to stop doing it. The New Testament closes with a hymn. You read about it in Revelation 5. But what about the regulative principle of worship that our brothers and sisters who hold this position appeal to? That is, that we are to do in worship only that which God has commanded, not simply that we may not do what he has forbidden. That's true, of course. But fewer circumstances of worship are provided for by way of regulation in the New Testament age, as was the case in the Old Testament. For instance, the time of administration of baptism... Remember what circumcision, how circumcision was regulated? Eighth day. There is no such regulation with respect to Christian baptism. Furthermore, one cannot prove that even during the Old Testament dispensation, the whole Psalter 
and only that was either commanded for use in corporate worship or was so used as a matter of fact. I challenged my, uh, my brothers who hold this position to show me that passage or to show me how by good and necessary inference I must deduce it from a passage in the Old Testament that indicates that that should have happened. The New Testament does indeed provide for singing in worship, but the content specifically is not prescribed. Now that doesn't mean we're allowed to sing anything we want in worship. Of course, what we sing to God must be what He has told us is true. We sing back to Him His revelation. In other words, our worship songs must be biblical. That's for sure. Well, the Psalms of David are Scripture, and they are biblical, and they are, of course, inspired. And hymns of human composition are not inspired in that sense. But are they therefore invalid for use in worship? I don't think so. How should we understand Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, which says, Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I remember when I was in seminary, John Murray, my professor of theology, who was an exclusive psalm singer proponent, said that uh, those three phrases, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, were the titles of the 150 psalms of David. In other words, that that was a way of speaking about the 150 psalms. He just said that. And I remember taking notes and writing it down. And I realized afterwards that he never documented that. Now, Professor Murray has gone to be with the Lord long since, and maybe someone else uh, asked him or found out what the documentation for that is, but I remember that I wondered about that, and I've yet to hear it. It's been alleged, but I don't know that it is proven. And therefore, I can conclude that that, those phrases, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, do not refer exclusively to the book of of the Psalter, but they refer indeed to the book of the Psalter and other worship songs outside the 150 Psalms of David. But I think, and here I'm getting to the end of my presentation on this question, I think the New Testament makes it very clear that we need a new song in the New Testament age. Imagine restricting our preaching and our praying to the Old Testament. Imagine that. Wouldn't you notice it if your pastor, after four or five years of preaching to you, you will discover has only preached to you from the Old Testament? And wouldn't you notice if all of his prayers were couched in the language of the dispensation of promise, constantly looking forward to the coming of Christ. You would wonder whether something is missing, and you'd be right. This seems to be instinctively sensed by the New Testament saints. And it is compatible with the new freedom that is granted in the New Testament dispensation that we should move beyond those inspired songs that God gave to His church in the Old Testament days because Christ had not yet come, and God is going to have to tell the people 
what Christ would do. And the Psalms do speak of the Savior. They certainly do. Many, many Psalms are Messianic Psalms. And when we sing those Psalms, we really are singing about our Savior. I wouldn't dispute that. But we have to come to the New Testament to tell us the Jesus who has appeared and what He has done. And when that New Testament tells us that, whole new vistas, wonderful praises for God are open to us. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah told the Israelite church, the people of God of the Old Testament, that the Lord God's name was not only Yahweh Tzadik in the Hebrew, which means the Lord is righteous. The Israelites already knew that. There wouldn't have been a single Israelite that would have, that would have scratched their heads when Jeremiah told them that. Of course the Lord is righteous and just in all His ways. But then, Jeremiah went on to say something that must have really made their heads spin. He said, People of God, His name is also Yahweh Tzidikainu. Yahweh Tzidikainu. And if you knew Hebrew, you would immediately understand that you are being told that the name of your God is the Lord is our righteousness. That is the exact translation, isn't it, Roger, of Siddikenu? Our righteousness. And I think that that Old Testament church said, Whoa, Jeremiah, that blows us away. We know that we will have to stand before Him someday and we will have to answer for our sins and we know that He is just and righteous and we're going to just have to cling to His promise that He's going to save us. But Jeremiah, whatever could you possibly mean to tell us that His name is I am your righteousness. I am Yahweh, your righteousness. But one day it all became very clear. And Paul wrote about it in the fifth chapter of Romans. And he told us that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, came to this earth, bore our sins in His own body on the cross, and gave us His own perfect record to be put in the place of our sinful record. And so Yahweh, the God from heaven, came down here and became our righteousness. No wonder then that Psalm hymn writers said, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness is my perfect dress. No wonder we have numerous hymns that bespeak how it is that the Lord is our righteousness. You'll never get that in the Old Testament. You won't find it in the Psalms of David. Wonderful as they are, glorious as they are in praising God, they don't tell us how that Jesus took our place, bore our sins, and gave us His righteousness in place of our sins. We have to await the New Testament revelation for that. And when that revelation comes, I would say we had jolly well better sing about it.
And we do. And we sing it back to God. I have mentioned this to some of my exclusive psalm singing brethren and well they say Tom you just don't get it it's all implied in the psalms of David and I say yes I'm sure it is because God it was who gave us those psalms and he knew what he was going to do in Jesus but it's not explicitly stated it's not explicitly stated and it only comes to us in that explicit form in the New Testament and that's why we sing hymns as well as psalms. Now we behold God's glory in Jesus. The Old Testament church was kind of like learning scales in music. Now we've got the whole symphony. Sometime just read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you'll hear a symphony. The Song of Moses and of the Lamb. The Song of Moses is the Old Testament revelation. And chief in that Old Testament revelation for singing purposes would be the Psalms of David. That's the Song of Moses. But we sing as well the Song of the Lamb. And that is the entirety of the New Testament revelation which explains to us how Jesus saves us. That's why we sing hymns as well as psalms. But they better be good ones. Not every hymn is a good one. And uh, sessions ought to be very discriminating about what hymn books we use and about what hymns we sing. Personally, I like to sing half psalms and half hymns. When I'm a pastor of a church, when I was a pastor of the church, I did that regularly. We usually had four worship selections in a typical worship service. Almost always two of them were the Psalms of David and two of them were New Testament hymns. I feel that's a balance. Actually, I preached about half the time on the Old Testament about half the time on the New Testament too. So it wasn't anything new and people wouldn't be surprised that I did that. Now I'd like to move on to the last segment of uh, the course. We're, we're almost at the end. And uh, I'd like to just say a few things. Transition with me here, will you? To the question of choosing music. Choosing any music, not just worship music. And uh, I was just told tonight at the dinner table that one of the kids wanted me to say some more about rock music. I, I really can't say much more about rock music because I... I'm really pretty ignorant on it. It hasn't been one of my strong points. <laughs> Some of my children have liked different rock groups, but I never really got into it. And so I feel like a, a bit of a dummy on rock music. But I don't feel like a dummy when I tell you this. <laughs> when you choose music, choose good music, whatever its genre, whatever its type. And what is good music? I would say good music is music that does good. It's probably the most important thing I'm going to say all week on music. Music that is good is music that does good. And whether it's country, opera, rock, reggae, whatever, if it doesn't 
do good in your life and in the life of your family, you might question whether it's good music. That means its lyrics can't be full of wrongdoing and glorifying wrongdoing and explaining away wrongdoing. I think some country songs are abominable because they glorify wrongdoing. And I'm sure that some rock music is abominable when it glorifies wrongdoing. But I wouldn't rule out all country or all rock or all any kind of music out of hand. Ask yourself the question, does this music do good? If it does, and mom and dad still say, I don't want you to listen to it, say very humbly and very respectfully, but mom and dad, here's why I think it does good. <laughs> and ask them to listen to you, and I think they will. And then if they still say don't listen to it, then don't listen to it, because they're the dad and the mom. That's why, for now. Obviously, good music is not music that is just done technically well. Otherwise, uh, we would praise a bank robbery done with precision. But music that does good is music that is truthful, appropriate, Music that moves the listener to righteous sentiments and that uses one's gifts well. And once more, I close this section by saying, if you don't like a certain kind of music, please try to learn to say, I don't like it yet, and give it a chance. I want to close the whole thing on music by saying some things about contemporary hymns. Now, we sang some very good ones tonight. And we thank uh, Ben and his group for coming up here. They basically did what I was going to do now, so I don't have to do too much. I can make this a little shorter than I was going to. Uh, they gave us an exam some examples of very good ones. How Great Is Your Love. That is one of the best contemporary hymns. That one ought to go right into the next printing of Trinity Hymnal. Wonderful, wonderful hymn. Great Commission Publications, the uh, publications arm of our denomination and that of the PCA, for we work together, prepared the contents for a new hymnal supplement a few years ago to be entitled Trinity Songbook. I had the privilege of serving as the chairman of a nine-person committee, five from the PCA and four from the OPC. We met about eight times in Atlanta, Georgia. GCP spent upwards of $40,000 for this project. We met together after spending hundreds and hundreds of hours investigating contemporary hymns and meeting together we not only gathered and assembled a collection of 140 contemporary hymns that we thought were the best of them, but in some cases we had new tunes written. The one that we sang of the words that I wrote, uh, the translation of 1 Timothy, undoubtedly great, the mystery of Christ, they didn't use the tune we used, but a new tune was written by Ronald Matthews, who is uh, the music director in a PCA congregation. In fact, the 
PCA congregation in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, near where I live, the church that my brother Rick is the pastor of, Ron Matthews wrote the tune for that hymn, and we didn't use it because it, we're not free to use it. And he wrote nine other tunes in that uh, Trinity songbook, and uh, we can't use them either. Because what happened was that when GCP presented the proposed songbook to the respective Christian education committees of the two parent bodies of GCP, that is our denomination and the PCA, for their approval, although the PCA gave its approval, our Orthodox Presbyterian Committee didn't. Now, at the time, I was the general secretary of our Committee on Christian Education, and the vote in our committee was 15 to 0 to disapprove of that uh, book. I was very disappointed, and I said so. It didn't have anything to do with uh, me stopping being the general secretary a couple of years later. We got along fine, and I understood their position. One of their arguments was that it was too elitist. What they meant by that was it's too hard. And I admit that there were some difficult songs in there, but I felt that they, that they could be learned, especially if they do some take five in the congregation. But uh, I want you people to understand this is not sour grapes here. I fully respect my brothers. I accept the decision. But I wanted you to know historically what has happened. I don't think the jury is in yet on that one. Uh, there may be another round of this one, perhaps not in my lifetime, uh, but uh, maybe we will have another go at it. And it could very well be that in the days to come, we won't have to have Ben come and uh, uh, put the, the songs up on the, on the overhead. Well, we've been singing other uh, contemporary songs be before Ben's group. It may not be that we'll have to scrap around to find the words and find the music. Uh, we may have a book. Maybe it will be a revised Trinity hymnal that will include, here's my dream, a full Psalter, folks. I want all 150 psalms in the new Trinity hymnal, the new, new Trinity hymnal. And I want, how great is your love, O Lord, and I lift your name, and some other incredibly good contemporary hymns. I want them in there. And I want about 150 of the songs that are currently in the Red Trinity Hymnal out. Because I think we've inherited some ones that are something less than the best hymnody. Now we're getting really down to it. And uh, that's a lot of my own personal opinion. But uh, I wanted to make very clear to you folks I didn't come all the way across this country, away from the uh, Christian Education Committee in Philadelphia, to come out here to uh, Southern California and bellyache about the fact that our denomination won't publish a Trinity songbook. I'm not doing that. I'm uh, telling you what happened, and I'm telling you where we are, and uh, I guess we'll just have to wait. Wait for time and see if in time we can get some of these very good contemporary hymns in our books so that we can all have them before us. Meanwhile, New Life Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Diego, how many of you are from that congregation? La Mesa? Nobody? Nobody here this year from La Mesa? 
Well, New Life OPC in San Diego has published for its own use a contemporary hymnal containing 90% of the material that was contemplated for the GCP book. And uh, actually, one of the elders in that church uh, could very well be seeking to purchase the rights to Trinity Songbook from GCP, and if that is granted him, then ultimately that book, which was not agreed and not approved to be published, will be published under other auspices. So it may actually see the light of day someday. But I want you to sing now with me three selections that were in the Trinity Songbook. And uh, one of them, and I need somebody to do the overhead for this. Could somebody come up here, please? Somebody that can read music. Because you've got to know when to put the second page up. This song, Glory Be to the Father, now we're getting real nepotism here, it was written by my brother Rick, and it's a, a doxology that may be sung as a round with the second group beginning on the syllable um of triumphant. Each group, each group sings it through twice, ending the second time with an amen. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to sing it through together, then we're going to try it as a round. This is a doxology. You know, we have, or the Gloria Patri. We have the Gloria Patri, and we've sung it 17,463 times. Well, here's a new one, folks. Here's the tune. you go back and sing it over again and then when you come to the end of it the second time you sing Amen okay sing it with me please will you done good. You must have been paying attention to take five. Uh, do you like that? Isn't that neat? Okay, let's, uh, let's do it again. We're going to do it. We're not done yet. 
We're going to do it as a round. Now, I'm going to, when I play, I'm going to have to play as though I'm, play, I'm singing with only one side. But the other side has to not worry too much about what I'm doing. The chords work out fine. But I will be singing a different, I will be playing a different melody than you're singing. Okay, which side is the smarter side? That side is the smarter side? Okay, then you dumb side gets a start. Okay. You're going to sing, Glory be to the Father, loud hosannas, raised to the Son, the tri-um. And as soon as they say um on that word um, you're going to start out at the beginning. Glory be to the Father. Were you listening? Do you understand what I'm saying? They're going to go, the tri-glory be. And what you do is, you sing it through twice, just like we did, and then sing Amen. And you sing it, what? Very carefully. <laughs> you sing it through twice, just like we did, with an Amen at the end. Of course, you know what happens with rounds. They'll have stopped, and you'll be singing alone at the very end. I don't know what he's supposed to do. is uncontrollable. <laughs> okay, now I have another one. I have another one for you. Am I, am I still... Have I still got a mic? I've got another one for you that isn't around. You're going to love this one. This is Psalm 84... Wonderful psalm about going to church and about being in the presence of God with His people. And we're going to sing this to Danny Boy. Yes, we are. It fits. This is an incredible illustration 
of music that was meant for a psalm, even though they didn't know it when they wrote it.
Does that work? And finally, I lift your name. We have that, uh, we have the words. Do you think you know the tune of this well enough? How many of you know the tune to I lift your name? Play it. Uh, You might remember it. the Lord, our righteousness. We worship you. We praise you. We adore you. You are the God and our God. And we are so grateful for the privilege of singing your praise. 
may we ever lift